Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. Welcome to, yep, another coronavirus episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends and part of the United Wecast Network. I'm Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1, you can hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me by ordering the memoir of Brian Grant and his battle with young onset Parkinson's called Rebound. Pre-ordered copies are available now on Amazon. Highly recommend. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily, but not exclusively, involving the NBA. And that is here. All right, before we get to the main subjects of the podcast, which is essentially what we learned from the final three games on Martin Luther King Day is a bit of housekeeping. I have been promising for weeks now to talk either about the meteoric rise of Christian Wood with the Houston Rockets or the amazing spiral by Pascal Siakam of the Toronto Raptors. I don't know how interested you guys are since I haven't heard a great clamor out there about Buker, why are you holding out on us? Why are you not delivering? but I'm going to deliver at least on the Siakam. Here's the truth on the Christian Wood. I'm trying to get him on the show. Uh, in conversation, a lot of mil- there's a million requests now because he's blown up. And I generally like to get guys before they blow up or because I have a particular connection to them. That's not the case here, other than his agent is from the Bay Area. But beyond that, no particular connection. I'm interested in him because I saw him when he first came in with Philadelphia and from everything that I heard and everything that I saw, I did not think he was going to last in the NBA, much less become what he's become. And in a way, he did not last. Uh, Christian did not. Had to go over to China and then got cut over in China. And that's when the alarm clock went off for him and things changed from there. So that's what I'd like to talk to him about find out why he started out the way he did, what changed. But I'd like to hear his version of it. So that's why I haven't said a whole lot. And I'm not going to say a whole lot about Christian to this point. Uh, Siakam, I've made some inquiries. And essentially, it's pretty simple. I mean, if you look at his numbers, they haven't changed all that dramatically. They fell off precipitously from what he did during the regular season last year to the playoffs. And they've continued to go down, not from the playoffs, they're not as low as the playoffs, but fallen off. He's slightly better than he was in the playoffs last year. And we're talking in the regular season. You would have thought that a guy after having the postseason that he had 
might come back with a vengeance and regular season not being the playoffs, not quite as intense, not the bubble. But he has not really recovered. And a big part of it simply is that he's being asked, has been asked to play a bigger role, uh, a go-to guy. They're putting the ball in his hands in critical situations to make plays. And he has not, more often than not, been able to come through. And that's just the distinction between a guy who is the number three option and playing with better talent than he has now. There's just a little bit more space when you have Marcus Gasol and Serge Ibaka on the floor with you. And the reason any of this matters is simply because at the beginning of last year, he signed a four-year, $130 million contract. And that's a lot of money to pay for a third option. Now, from what I've seen, and I haven't seen every minute of every Toronto Raptors game, but it appears as if they're not asking him to do quite as much. They're having him play off the ball, rolling to the rim, and that's when he's at his best. Uh, I mean, he's a dynamic, athletic player, still a very good defender, but OG Ananobi is giving them far more bang for the buck at this point. Of course, he's benefiting that there's probably more attention on Siakam than there is on him. In any case, the most interesting aspect of Siakam right now is what are the Raptors going to do? Do they hope he's going to come out of it? Are they going to try to move him? There was some talk that they could dangle him in the James Harden deal. Houston's probably a little too smart for that. They've seen the tape. They know what Siakam is and isn't. So that will be the interesting thing, whether they're going to hitch their wagon to him and hope that he can evolve or try to get out from under that money. The Raptors aren't in a horrible salary cap situation. They're about middle of the pack when it comes to what they're committed to this year. But Kyle Lowry is on an expiring contract at $30 million this year. And the question is to what they would sign him back for next year, or if they do re-sign him. Short of it is, Raptors are very close to rebuild mode. They got Fred Van Vliet, OG, at $72 million more coming. And... Siakam as their nucleus. So Masai Ujiri has some work to do, clearly, if they are going to get back to, forget about title contention, just being a consistent playoff team. Not convinced that they're going to get there this year. Although everybody at this point in the entire league, just about, except maybe the Minnesota Timberwolves, are in the mix. There is still one item I want to hit before we go on to the MLK games. And I promise this is it. And it's simply, well, this is inspired by the fact that I may have had the greatest bowl of pistachios that I've ever had in my life. These were big, plump, the shells opening like clams, easy to open. But that's neither here nor there. I always like to leave you guys with something that can benefit you above and beyond any basketball news, insider information, or whatever. And I'm, I'm, maybe I should be embarrassed by the fact that this is such a revelation to me, but in case there's anybody out there that wasn't aware of, of this, this trick, I want to share it with you here. It wasn't until, I don't know, maybe a year ago that I've discovered the cheat code of how you pry open the ones, the, the shells that only have a tiny split at the seam. I always was using a, a fingernail to get in there and, you know, eventually get them all jacked up. And But that was the price you paid. And then somebody told me or I saw on a video, I somewhere I saw you take one of the half shells and you use that to pry them open. Oh, life-changing. For sure. The beauty of this bowl was there was probably about, I kid you not, it's a fairly big bowl, like cereal bowl size, right? I'd say there was four shells that I needed to go to the cheat code to get open. Now that I think about it, I'm going to wait a while before I go back to the bag. I feel as if I'm supposed to savor that experience, that bowl, to really do it justice. All right. 
in order to do this podcast justice and your patronage, let's get to the MLK games. Well, and I'm just going to do the three late games. That would be the Milwaukee Bucks and the Brooklyn Nets, Chicago Bulls and the Houston Rockets, and the Lakers and the Warriors. So let's start with probably the least consequential or significant game of the night, and that was the Bulls and the Rockets. I won't spend too much time on this, I promise. First of all, the Bulls are clearly drinking Billy Donovan's Kool-Aid because he called them out just a week or so ago and said something that some teams would not take the right way. He said that they still need to learn to win. It's true, but you never know how a young team is going to respond to that. Well, they responded in the affirmative. They promptly beat San Antonio and Houston on back-to-back nights, and they played with an attention to detail and focus in the fourth quarter that had been lacking. They'd gone up on some teams by double digits and then simply got run over in the fourth quarter. Looked like a very young team. I'm really surprised at how quickly they have made the adjustment. One of the big ones was that uh, they've taken Kobe White off of the ball in those situations. They're going and putting it in Zach Levine's hands. And while he's not a pure point guard, he's a better playmaker and a better decision maker right now, particularly when it comes to Laurie Markkinen. I just, I, I haven't dug deep into the numbers, but I, I sense that they've discovered that Markkinen does not get as good looks when Kobe is the point guard and running the show compared to Zach. And understandably, Zach and Markkinen have, played together a little bit longer. Uh, Kobe was in a unique situation coming off the bench. I'm still feeling as if Kobe ideally is not a starting point guard, but a third combo guard off the bench. One of those scorers off the bench to give you a boost. But I like his gutsiness. I'll give you that. Uh, Another takeaway Still waiting for Victor Oladipo to show he's anything close to the old Victor Oladipo. He's, he looks like him. He's playing consistently, but he doesn't have that burst. And the severity of his quad injury makes me wonder if he'll ever get that back. And at his size and the way he plays, that is essential for him to be the Oladipo that uh, took the world by storm. In Indiana. There were rumors, by the way, that he wanted out of Indiana, that he'd worn out his welcome there. It seems a bit odd considering what type of guy he seems to be and has been presented by a number of people that I talked to. That said, uh, he must have done something wrong because uh, the karma gods putting him in Houston at this point is not something that I would wish for a lot of people they could potentially sneak into the playoffs but the chemistry and the culture John Wall I I think a lot of I question his leadership skills I don't think he's a bad guy I just think he enjoys life as much as he can and when you're the best player on a team sometimes you have to make sacrifices and set an example for younger players. So between him and DeMarcus Cousins, who, again, talented guy, don't think he's a bad guy, but he's a handful. And Oladipo doesn't have the kind of personality or the game at this point that he would be able to, even if he were willing, to change the culture or call anybody out. So... I'm not feeling good about where the Rockets are and where they're headed, even with Christian Wood blowing up and the possibility that they could make the playoffs in the West. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, 
you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. All right. On to the Bucks and Nets. And boy, is there a lot to unpack here. For those scoring at home, the Nets won 125-123 with Kevin Durant hitting a big three off of a missed three and rebound by James Harden. Now that in itself tells you a little bit about what's changed with James Harden. He missed a three and he got the rebound and then kicked it to Kevin Durant for the winner. There's so much there that speaks about how excited Harden is that he got his wish and was ultimately dealt to the Brooklyn Nets. It's almost comical what good behavior he was on. He shared the ball as much as he ever has. Uh, I looked this up and I didn't even know they had this stat. So the NBA stats has this, uh, keeps track of the number of shots players take after zero dribbles, one dribble, two dribble, dribbles, all the way up to seven plus dribbles. The leader in the category this season so far is Luka Doncic. That surprises me not at all and also speaks volumes about why I don't think he's MVP worthy based on how much he dominates the ball and how inefficient he has been so far this season. If you've listened to previous podcasts, you know that I've been on the let's take it down a notch or four when it comes to Doncic and the preseason, wherever it came from, the preseason campaign to make him this year's MVP. Number two on that list is Damian Lillard. Again, not all that surprising. Number three, James Harden. And number four, Kyrie Irving. That's the first reason why assessing the Nets and getting excited about them beating Orlando and now Milwaukee in the first two games that Harden and Kevin Durant played together is misleading at best, meaningless uh, at worst, in that we need to see Kyrie and James Harden play together. And this is what's truly troubling. Kyrie, we know why he came to Brooklyn. I mean, he's said it. He said it as recently in his press conference coming back from his two-week absence for a multitude of unexplained reasons. Personal, political, COVID, whatever. He, did, he wasn't specific, and which is troubling because it means we can't really define why he was gone, which means we can't completely be confident that he won't be gone again. Especially when... This is the worst scenario. James coming in, being the playmaker, being the playmaker with minimal dribbles, because that was the change. He was he was third on that list coming in. I guarantee you, uh, I haven't seen the stats on it, but he was not taking seven-plus dribbles to get things going for the Nets against the Bucks. He was uber-efficient when it came to that. Turned the ball over a lot in the first half, five or six times. Didn't turn it over at all in the second half. In his two games with the Nets, he has 26 assists. Now, he also has 15 turnovers. He had nine against Orlando. But he's moving the ball, and he's moving the ball effectively. And Kyrie has had one double-digit assist game this year and is averaging around six, which is just above his career average. The point is that it's pretty clear that the ball is going to be in James's hands. Now, why did Kyrie come to Brooklyn? Same reason he left Cleveland. He wants to be regarded as a franchise cornerstone. The man. The man who leads a team to a championship. Because he's never been given that credit or that recognition. Talent-wise, I think he's got it. Leadership, those intangibles never proved it to this point. And now he faces a situation where even if he were to be on his best behavior, he's not going to have the ball in his hands. And 
he's going to be viewed as the third option. It's going to be awfully hard to look at him in any other way at this point because of how Harden and Durant have played in these first two games. It's only two games, but Kyrie's going to be fighting against that. And as we know, Kyrie seems to be fighting against a lot of things right now. And this is where this is where there's there's one element, there's one single element that does bind the three of them. And I'm going to save that for a future podcast because a few things have to happen before it's going to matter. And I hate to be so vague or mysterious, but Let's just see where things go, and then I'll bring it back. And you'll have listened, and when I bring it back, if I bring it back, then you'll say, ah, that's the thing he was talking about. For right now, the best thing that I like about the Nets is how much appreciation Harden and KD seem to have for each other. That's about it. Of course, Harden was going to be on his best behavior. And DeAndre Jordan was going to, it was mic'd up, was going to enjoy the freedom that he was going to get and the ability to demonstrate being back in the starting lineup now that Jarrett Allen is in Cleveland, get an opportunity to show that he can still play. They could not be in a better situation. but And they won the game in spite of the fact that they were horrendous, horrendous defensively down the stretch. I actually came away from the game feeling better about the Bucks than I, maybe that I ever have, even though they lost the game. And I do think there's an inherent flaw that they have when it comes to winning a championship. But I could at least see them getting to the conference finals now, especially with the mixed bag that the Eastern Conference is now, than I ever have. And there's a couple reasons. One, Drew Holiday improves them immensely when it comes to having to defend big guards and to make smart decisions. He can play with an offense that focuses on Middleton, uh, Middleton and, and Giannis, to be honest. He can come through when you need him, but he can take a back seat. He's He's a mini Clay Thompson when it comes to that. Not the same shooter, but defensively very similar and offensively ability to meld his game around other primary choices unless you need him to step up and then he can. I also, it's clear, this was most notable for me, is that the Bucks were going out of their way last year when they didn't when they're still trying to convince Giannis and they still didn't know he was going to re-up, they would run plays for him in situations where I'd scratch my head and think, you know, you're not going to get anything out of it. You're probably not going to get anything out of this, right? And they'd throw him a bone and it wouldn't go well. And then they'd go back to running it through somebody else. And, but they had to do it. Right. And I, I get it. I get it. Uh, but they're not dealing with that anymore when they played pick and roll they were having Middleton and Giannis play pick and roll Giannis setting the screen and rolling and essentially the primary was to get Middleton open for either a three or a pull-up at the elbow and he got that time after time after time and why Middleton decided to change up uh, on the last two possessions I'm not exactly clear, but he ran himself into, into trouble. Still had the guts to take the shot. Still shot it very well. I just question, this is the ultimate flaw for them, is can Chris Middleton be your go-to guy on a championship winning team? Can he be the guy who gets it for you? Those guys generally are the Kevin Durants and the James Hardens and Steph, when everything's right, in that they can get their shot against anybody. And 
Steph has to be healthy, and I'm, I'm going to put him in that category, even though physically he really needs all cylinders clicking in order to do that. And he needs, he needs to have that 35-footer falling. Damian Lillard's very much the same. That, that, that deep three has to be hitting in order to open up their ability to attack, get inside, and then either hit the mid-range or finish at the rim, or their array of floaters and whatnot. Chris Middleton doesn't quite have, he doesn't, first of all, he doesn't have that same incredible range, and he doesn't have the complete bag that Lillard and Steph have. He's bigger physically, but he doesn't have the same arsenal when it comes to shooting. And so that's my, that's to me is the ultimate flaw. But the fact that they no longer have to cater to Giannis, which were just basically wasted possessions. And in nip and tuck games, you can't afford those. Not, I mean, you're going to have some anyway, but when they're there by design because of the big picture, then that really hampers you. And for Giannis's part, he looked perfectly comfortable being, being that roller, being a, a glorified Clint Capella, if you will. The other aspect about Giannis, and I want to give him credit on this, because I felt at times that he looks confused when it comes time to hit a big shot or when they leave him all alone at the three-point line. And he stepped into them. And his mid-range took the mid-range. And I want to say he even hit a couple. But his game has evolved, not to the point that it needs to, certainly not to the point where he can be their go-to guy with the game on the line. But he's taken another step, and he accepted the challenge. And so I, if you're asking me, you know, who do I like more, the Bucks or the Nets? I mean, the Nets have that formula of those guys that can close games. So if they can keep it close, then certainly the advantage goes to them but defensively can they play well enough DeAndre Jordan played 37 38 minutes they can't do that with him consistently through the season and I dare say you wouldn't do that against playoff teams you can game plan to take full advantage of DeAndre Jordan if he's going to be on the floor that much 38 minutes anything over 30 minutes and that's going to swing the advantage the other way when it comes to uh, attacking him and exploiting the fact that you don't have to guard him beyond him rolling to the rim. Now, I'm not going to fault anybody for favoring the Nets or thinking that they're going to wind up coming out of the East because the truth is I really don't like anybody in the East. I don't see a favorite there. I'm just not discounting the Bucks and their ability to potentially be better than the Nets just because they lost this particular game. The Bucks are going to have to realize that it can't be a possession, possession, possession by possession game against the Nets. They're going to lose those more often than not. But if they get after it defensively and they're able to exploit the Brooke Lopez, DeAndre Jordan matchup in that Brooke can space, space the floor. He hit one big three. He missed two others, one from the, from the corner. I mean, had a corner three. Can't ask for more than that, especially on the right corner. And if he didn't airball it, he, he missed it pretty significantly. And that's just too big of an advantage for them. But he's going to have to knock down those shots when they, when they are ultimately there. Speaking of missing big shots. And this is why I saved the Warriors and the Lakers for the final game to discuss here. And in general, so you know, the reason that I'm doing this, I, I normally don't get into particular games. But because of MLK and because... I'm not writing right now when it comes to covering the league. This is me substituting the microphone for the keyboard. Because normally, even if I wasn't, it's been a while since I've done game stories. But with 
matchups like the ones that we saw on Monday, uh, Bleacher Report or ESPN would generally ask me to watch and pick up something that is a bigger theme that arose out of those particular games. And probably the biggest theme of the day for me, and didn't know this going in, didn't anticipate it, I, to be honest, I thought the Lakers would smash the Warriors. And when they came out rolling the way they did, I figured I may not even watch the second half. But Lakers just weren't really into this. They, <laughs> they looked like I like they agreed with me. We're just going to smash them, and so be it. Now, a couple of backstories here. Number one, Dennis Schroeder came out on fire against Steph and has traditionally played well against the Warriors. That's no accident. I was in Oklahoma City last year or ran across the Thunder, and I got to know Dennis when he was in Atlanta. For those who may not know, Schroeder may be the most or have the most interesting background of any NBA player in the league right now. And I know there are a number of guys that come from very interesting places. But first of all, he's German, born to a Gambian mother and was a skateboarder before he was a basketball player. Oh, and he's also Muslim. In short, a long way from the typical NBA player profile. And what I found is, in many cases, when guys come from very different backgrounds, they don't have the same cutthroat mentality that players do that have grown up here and where playing in the NBA has been their inspiration aspiration since they were very small. And so that's not the case with Dennis, though. Dennis is very confident, bordering on arrogant cocky. And it's no accident that he plays the way he does against Steph. Not that he thinks that he's better than Steph. Not that he doesn't respect Steph. But much like Kyrie Irving, wants to prove that he deserves to be on that level. When I ran into him in Oklahoma City last year, I talked to him about his being uh, touted as sixth man of the year and Oklahoma City was a surprise playoff team and uh, talked to him about playing you know, with Chris Paul and he talked about all the things that he'd learned. But he also made it very clear without me even asking that he wanted to get back to starting in the league. And that's why I knew that when he went to L.A. and there was all that debate before the season started about was he going to start or were they going to play Caruso or how are they going to do that? And I just thought, they're going to have a problem on their hands if Schroeder doesn't start. Ultimately, that hasn't been an issue. He started and he's played well. And he came out on fire once again against Steph. But Steph is a crafty veteran, and Steph had to know that Dennis was coming out to prove a point, which also may explain why the Lakers were not playing like the Lakers are capable of playing. Anytime personal agendas get into the mix, it's really easy to lose focus and to lose sight of, hey, we need to be doing what's best for the team collectively. I never got the sense that anybody from the Lakers was all that bothered by the way Dennis approached the game because it certainly was paying off early on. But that said, it still doesn't bode well in most cases. It's also a thing about Steph, and I've seen this with a number of veteran players. One, they check out certain things that they're capable of doing that get them a look or a shot early on. And if it works, they don't necessarily go to it time and time and time again because the opposition is going to make an adjustment and they're going to find a way to take that away. They usually just put it in their back pocket. You know what? I, when I need one, 
this is what I'm going to go to. And I felt like Steph did a little bit of that in this game. He wasn't going to go mano a mano with Schroeder. He knew it was a long game and that if the Warriors were going to win, that he was going to have to have something in the tank for the fourth quarter. Sure enough, that's the way that it played out. Now, what was most interesting to me about the fourth quarter is that it spoke volumes about why so many people struggle with the greatness of LeBron James. And let there be no mistake, LeBron James is great. He is an amazing talent. I do believe his age is showing because he's trying to bulldoze players and back his way down more now than I've ever seen him. His ability to explode past people is not there. Still can get up and throw it down, but when it comes to making a quick move and taking somebody off the dribble, I suggest you go back and watch him in his, well, you can go back to the Miami days, certainly before that. There was a lot more bounce to his off-the-dribble moves. Now, not so much. But that's not what caught my attention in the fourth quarter. Now, neither he nor Steph shot the ball particularly well the entire game. But in the fourth quarter, the game was there for the taking for either team. And as indifferent as the Lakers played, and as mildly interested as LeBron James seemed, it was there for the taking. Three minutes of good work, and the Lakers still walk away with a win, a professional win, as we like to say. And yet, LeBron made almost no effort to go and get it. Steph, on the other hand, you knew that he was looking for his shot. He was looking to get the matchup he wanted and to get to the spot that he wanted to hit the shots that he wanted. And he was even disappointed when he attacked the rim and missed the little floater that would have iced the game. He was still thinking about that at the other end, which tells you that for all of his veteran experience, like they tell you, erase it, move on, don't let it affect you. He was clearly affected. There was a timeout by the Lakers, and you could tell he was still thinking about that missed floater. But was what I couldn't get over, what I still can't get over, well, I, I guess I can at this point because I've come to understand that LeBron James does not try to win every game. And that's what really distinguishes him from all the other great players, Kobe, Jordan, Magic, Bird. It, it's fascinating because he's great in so many ways. And yet his ability or willingness to let a game go that he considers unimportant is astonishing. Now, maybe that, exp that explains his durability. Uh, the fact that he's been able to play as much as he has for as long as he has to accomplish as much as he has. That he can make that business decision. I just, the guys that are the all-time greats have a competitive fire and a thirst for winning that they just can't put aside. And as we know with Jordan, it was pretty much everything. It wasn't just being on the basketball court. It was everywhere and anything. LeBron does not have that element. In the fourth quarter against the Warriors, in the last 11 minutes, he drove once and got fouled. And I believe it was a foul on the floor, but the Warriors were in the bonus. So he went to the free throw line for two free throws. So I actually didn't shoot the ball. Just got fouled on the drive. Other than that, he did not take a shot 
within 25 feet of the basket. Now, James Wiseman was in foul trouble and not on the floor. Draymond Green was the center. Andrew Wiggins was out there, Kelly Oubre, Eric Paschal, and Steph. That's how small they were. And yet, LeBron was hoisting threes or driving and kicking to Kyle Kuzma and Alex Caruso or Anthony Davis. And that to me is why there's such a conundrum because Steph is not as gifted as LeBron James. He can't dominate the game at both ends of the floor the way LeBron can. But Steph is always going to try to figure out a way to go after it as best as he can. Is going to fully utilize whatever he has in order to try to get it. And LeBron simply doesn't always. And that's where the, well, he was just making the right basketball play. Or what I was, somebody said that he was giving his teammates an opportunity to win the game. Look, you can do that for the first 46 minutes, 45, 46 minutes. If they haven't done it by then, and nobody had, Schroeder had fallen off from where he was at the beginning of the game. Nobody else really had it going, Anthony Davis included. That's where you just say, hey, look, fellas, we'll try again some other day. I'm going to go win this game. LeBron simply didn't. It's not that he didn't. He didn't try. Not to the best of his ability. That's not a diss as much as it is a complaint. Because I, I want to see that. I want to see that greatness on display. This is exactly why Curry fans scoff at LeBron fans who think he's more talented than, than Steph or is somehow Steph is less of a champion. Yes, LeBron hoisted up the last three that could have won it, but he didn't square up. It didn't come close. And it was way too little, too late. Considering who he was playing against. I mean, Draymond Green is more of a vocal defender now in organizing people than he is just pure ability to stop somebody. I love him to death. I love Draymond. I love the way he's coaching the young guys. I love the way he's trying to keep the warrior spirit of we can still make something magical happen this season alive. I, I love all of that. I appreciate all of that. But LeBron has to understand that <laughs> Draymond doesn't have any help out there and Draymond's not the same player he was two, three years ago. The truth is, the harsh truth when it comes to the Warriors is that they're only going to win if somebody overlooks them. They simply don't have enough. Andrew Wiggins and Kelly Oubre, God bless them, especially Oubre. I, I do believe that they are trying they just spent too many years in programs on teams where they were not held accountable or asked to be efficient or won enough to understand what goes into winning. And so much of it is, is not making shots and sharing the ball and protecting it as it is being in the right place and understanding the demeanor through a course of a game. Kelly Oubre, at one point, they were down, I don't know, 12, 14, and he scored, and he got a technical for blowing a kiss to Montrez Harrell. Now, we can debate all we want whether that's worthy of a technical. You're down by 12, 14. What are you doing blowing a kiss to somebody? Now, maybe, just maybe, Montrez or somebody else said something to Kelly, and that was his way of responding. But still, you're, there's too much other work to do, and it, all you did was make a shot. Steph said afterward it was the best game that Oubre has played. And that only makes the blown kiss more damaging, because you need to find a way to play efficiently 
and with energy and with focus. If the only way you get that energy up is by making it personal, then that's not going to win on a consistent basis. And I don't know how many how many young players or young basketball fans are listening to this, but I'm sure at least some of them that I run across on Twitter may be rolling their eyes at that idea. Like, what are you talking about? You're stop, old man. What are you what are you saying? It's the reality. It's the it's it is entertainment. Basketball is entertainment. The NBA is entertainment, but it's also a business. And you have to understand the focus and attention to detail that is required to win when you play 72, 82, 100 games a year. That has to carry you. You can't, you can't ride on emotion. You can ride on desire. You can ride on discipline. You can ride on focus and concentration and resilience, but not emotion. It's too much of a roller coaster because for every rise in emotion, there's an inevitable dip. It's like sugar. It'll give you a momentary boost, but then it's going to let you down. And the problem is the sugar may not pay off, but the layup, but the letdown certainly going to cost you. I'm going to get off that soapbox. And I, the last thing I'll leave you with is simply what we're seeing from Steph Curry. I mean, this is the other side of the equation, which is Steph for the kind of game that he has reminds me a little bit of Allen Iverson with the Philadelphia 76ers in that for him to work his magic, he has to be given the latitude to take some low percentage shots, to attempt some low percentage plays. That's why whenever I walked in the locker room and I saw him, and he w was literally giddy any time that he looked at the box score after a game. And there was only one thing that he would look at, and that was turnovers. When he didn't have any turnovers, when he had a clean sheet, that's when he was happiest. Because that meant that he was, like, all of his uh, low percentage plays, none of them bit him in the ass. And But he needs that because it allows him to make plays the few people would even have the guts to try. And when he pulls them off, they give a boost to his team and they do something to the opposition that is tangible. So, but in order to give him the latitude to make those plays, you need everybody else to be efficient. And that's the problem that the Warriors have right now. Andrew Wiggins is not an efficient player. Kelly Oubre is not an efficient player. James Wiseman is pretty talented. I like what I've seen. There were questions about his motor. I've seen no problems in that department. I'm, I'm interested to go to back to some of those scouts and find out what it is, or maybe talk to him and find out why people thought that he didn't play with enough energy, because he's certainly played with it since he's been with the Warriors. Kevon Looney? Efficient player. Brad Wanamaker, for the role that he plays, pretty efficient player. But it's just not enough. When you look at the Warriors when they were championship caliber, they had Sean Livingston, Andre Iguodala, Clay Thompson. Andrew Bogut wouldn't take a shot that he wasn't 95% sure was going to go in. That formula worked. So Steph's still going to get his numbers but his efficiency is not going to be the same and it's not going to result in as many wins. Steph is more cherry on top than the banana in the Sunday. And again, that's not to discount him as a great player. He may be the biggest cherry that we've ever seen, but nonetheless, like he needs that nucleus underneath him doesn't need great players don't don't think that it's he just needs solid players he needs the Iguodalas the Livingstons the guys who can consistently play a role the mistake that the Warriors made if they made one is they thought they were going to get talent and they could hone it in Andrew Wiggins and Kelly Oubre and what they got was talent but inefficient talent erratic talent, 
not consistent talent and ability. So that's it. That's your breakdown of the final three games of MLK Day. In the next podcast, well, we're still working on getting Christian Wood. We also will have seen Kyrie Irving with Kevin Durant and James Harden. And it may be time to check in on the New Orleans Pelicans and what is and isn't happening with Zion Williamson. All that in the next podcast. Don't forget, please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I appreciate those who have been stepping up. Uh, The numbers have been going up and that benefits the podcast in a big way. So please just knock out a few stars. Leave us a comment if you would. Much appreciated. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.